The views expressed on this podcast represent only those of the hosts and do not represent the views of the Student National Medical Association. It's that time again. We are excited to celebrate our 60th anniversary and AMEC conference in New Orleans on March 27th through the 31st, 2024. The theme of this year's conference is From Pressure to Purpose, Illuminating the Path to Excellence. This theme embodies the spirit of the SNMA as well as the fullness of the journey each member commits to taking when pursuing a career in medicine. AMEC registration is now open. For more details, visit snma.org forward slash page forward slash AMEC 2024. Popping everybody, welcome to SNMA Presents The Lounge. Whether you're in the student lounge, doctor's lounge, or lounging around at home, get ready and active to join SNMA for meaningful conversations on topics affecting minorities in medicine and groups that often sit at the margin of healthcare. I am that doc from the block, white coat poppy, Bronx Nero underscore DO, all of that, Dr. Aldwin in the building, you know what I'm saying? And today's question is, if you could go back in time, where would you go and what would you be excited to celebrate? I would say for me, I would go back probably to like the late 70s, early 80s, because that's that funk, you know, get up off it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like energy. Woo! You know, every time I feel like that was that was a critical period because we were socializing, we were connecting, we were bonding. We were just right after the civil rights movement where everyone had the afros and they puffs and they was picking it out with the little picks and walking around with their right hand up with their fist and feeling in embracing of the culture of being black and being part of the diaspora and i would i would love to be able to celebrate that experience of just genuine love like coming on my in my community coming off the block not experiencing the animosities i feel nowadays that black people express toward each other nobody smiles nobody hugs each other mm. nobody shows love nobody engenders the positivity that we used to have the plight the courage the struggle that we all face not everybody faces those struggles individually as opposed to as a group, as a collective dynamic. And so that's what I wish we could embrace now in today's world. But um, how do y'all feel about that? What's y'all time to go back to? What would y'all celebrate? Well, hello, everyone. I'm student Dr. Isabella. Um, and if I could go back in time, you know, I'm always somebody, but it's all about moving forward in life and not going back. So that is a little bit conflicting for me. <laughs> but if I had to choose, um, I'd probably go back to like freshman week at Howard. I think mm -hmm. I have never experienced such lightness and just, just like newness since that time. I feel like I, I was full of life. I was so optimistic. Like I was so excited to explore like what laid ahead of me. And it was really my first time really kind of coming out of my shell and being open to creating a new foundation outside of my hometown um, and I really think that that was just a memorable week. Um, I probably would have been more intentional about trying to really meet more people um, during that time. But I think it was, you know, it was just like a very new experience. So I navigated it how I did. But yeah, if I had to choose, I'd probably go back to that that time. It was a good one. Freshman week was definitely nice, right? Mm -hmm. It was dope. 
This is Erica Dingle. And what would I go back in time to? I would probably go back to college as well um, and celebrate graduation maybe again, just to re-experience it. Um, it was a time where I don't think we realized that life would change so much. Mm. I mean, you have an mm -hmm. idea, but you really have no idea of what life is to become um, when you leave campus. And right. I would make it a different type of celebration. I think, you know, we all went out after graduation with our families to eat and mm -hmm. Mm. we went to parties but i would i would try to extend the celebration i don't know maybe even living with my friends for a month after college and just celebrate with them because it right. was the last time that all of us for four years like we lived together we grew up together mm. that that we would be in the same place like homecoming doesn't guarantee it you know um right yeah but yeah i would definitely go back and just celebrate being with them one more time for yes. what is likely the rest of our lives. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's beautiful that we, you know, um, that we both touched on college being such a pivotal time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, guys, it's it is that time again. It's it's very much that time again for our listeners, for our preclinical students. It's time to run the patient list. So running the patient list on the wards allows the team to address pressing matters of the day. In this segment of the show, we'll be discussing some recent events in medicine affecting our communities and the populations we serve. It is homecoming 2023 season. It is that time again, October being the month that, you know, we all go back to our respective HBCUs and celebrate you know, just being back to an environment that we spent four years of our lives in, um, as well as just coming back as alumni, seeing the new students and just engaging in those typical homecoming traditions. Um, of course, but we know that homecoming isn't just limited, you know, to HBCUs, but it's very, very um, significant in the HBCU culture. So I already know that you guys both went to HBCUs at some point. You know, Erica, you went to Hampton. Aldo, and you did go to Morehouse for your master's. I went to Howard for undergrad. Um, so mm -hmm. we've talked about it, of course, on previous episodes, whenever it is homecoming season. But, you know, remind the listeners, like, what that experience is like for you guys when you go back to your HBCUs and you, you know, celebrate homecoming with all of your friends and, you know, um, faculty, family, whoever it may be. Yeah, cousin, <laughs> what up? <laughs> nah, it feels like every nah homecoming it feels like everybody's your cousin. Everybody's good vibe, and for me, like I'm already a type of individual that likes to like say hi to everybody. Like I'll be walking mm -hmm. the streets in New York, saying what up to people, and they'd be like, "Yo, you the ops?" You know how this like being. I went to Morehouse School of Medicine, so mm -hmm. it kind of flipped my switch because in New York, you like isolate and you focus on a task, you get to your destination, but then. And the, in Georgia, it kind of bred me to like socialize. And then when I came into that experience of being at homecoming, it felt like I was truly part of something special, part of a family, especially like not knowing a lot of people in that area. It was like, you know, very heartwarming. So you just go mm -hmm. down the line, get the food, the drinks, like all the good vibes, the good mm -hmm. music. You never know who you're going to run into also. Because there's, you know, for, fortunately, there's a lot of, you know, uh, successful people that have, you know, come out of the HBCUs that may come back and pop out. And show their love and show their good energy. So it's always like a good vibe, a good time. I can't say that I had like a specific memory of like, oh, this is like something like crazy monumental. But I will say mm -hmm. that 
being able to experience that as like a once in a lifetime thing. And it, it, it feels like you were a chosen one when you go to homecoming. It's like, you know, you're part of a historic, <laughs> 100%. prestigious, like privileged history. You know what I'm saying? Mm. In terms of HBCUs and colleges and the like, and not many people have that opportunity. Like I don't know many people from my block that went to college, nonetheless, the actual HBCU and mm. have that story and acclaim to be energized and uh, invigorated in such a special way. Yeah, I think homecoming is, you know, we know it's a celebration um, and we know it is oftentimes more closely associated with HBCUs. I am aware that other institutions like PWIs, they do have their own homecoming traditions. But I think in terms of looking forward, (laughs) gosh, in terms of looking forward to going back, you know, getting rejuvenated, reinvigorated, um, even to just rehash old times, right? Go back, take a trip down memory lane. Mm -hmm. But for many of us and, you know, medical students alike where you might be one of 20 and I feel like 20 is a lot, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, black students, you get to kind of get together and it's like, Oh, a face that can empathize with my experience. Um, Mm -hmm. even if they, your friends, that you attended undergrad with aren't in medical school. They still have their own experiences in corporate America and just being black in America. Um, I will also say one of my favorite, most favorite homecoming experiences as an alumni was at Prairie View in Mm. Texas, Prairie View Um, Mm A&M. And the reason is in the South South, they do homecoming different with tailgating, um, like just seeing the older alumni, the seasoned alumni with their trailers, their tents being so welcoming, not only to the people they attended college with, but to the young alumni, um, Mm. the fried fish, the barbecue, Mm. and then, you know, a meeting, (laughs) a meeting of the minds, right? Like getting mentors just based off a conversation. Um, So it's, it's not just a party. It's, it is, it's an experience that is truly enriching to the soul. Right. But we cannot ignore the party aspect of it, correct? We, we oh, can't never. ignore it. But I'm so glad <laughs> that you like touched on the um, other side of it, which is like the enrichment side, where you mm-hmm. are gaining, you know, mm-hmm. wisdom and experience from those who came before us. You know, when we attended mm-hmm. um, that HBCU. So yeah, that's that's 100 amazing. You already know how I'm going to be come October at Howard. I will not. Yo, be when is that? Um, it is the weekend of October 20th. For those who are planning to come, that is when Whoa. it is going to be. We so, outside. We are 100% outside. That's the only yeah. option. That's the only <laughs> option. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it's, so for those who attend in HBCUs, October really for us is homecoming. But for those who probably didn't attend HBCUs, October is probably just another month, especially to like our <laughs> listeners and to our health professionals probably what will be more relevant for them is talking about October being Health Literacy Month. Um, So Health Literacy Month was founded in 1999 by Helen Osborne and is now brought to you by the Institute of Healthcare Advancement. So we know health literacy is a broad term, but it can really kind of be staggered into two main buckets, one being personal health literacy, health literacy, and organizational health literacy. So 
personal being how well a person can find, understand, and use information and services to make decisions about their own health and the health of others versus organizational being how well organizations equitably help all people find, understand, and use information and services to make decisions about their own health and others. So we know it's significant because, you know, patients who aren't able to successfully interpret health information have increased hospitalization rates, they develop more diseases, and they experience higher mortality. And, you know, there's many ways that you can tell if somebody may not be that health literate, either if they're always frequently missing appointments, maybe they're not really compliant with their meds, Mm -hmm. maybe they're unable to really give you that coherent sequential history about this is what's been going on when you ask them to give, you know, to give you an update about their health. And so I want to ask, of course, you guys um, as health professionals, you know, what are some ways you guys believe that providers can educate their patients um, when it comes to their health? Yeah, to be honest, like I think that in this capitalistic structure, it's so hard to really spend time to educate your patients because for mm-hmm. oftentimes, like in medical school, we learn all this terminology and biochem and all these various things that we also don't learn how to communicate to our patients because we have this vast, expansive knowledge in our brain. But to be mm-hmm. able to inherit that knowledge, dissect it and break it down to the point where we could actually relate to the patient on a I wouldn't say low level, but lower level, you know, in terms right. of like understanding and awareness. Um, I think that 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 becomes a challenge. But also, like I said, as it pertains to revenue, revenue base and capitalism, oftentimes it's about how many patients you see and not the quality of the experience that you create for your patients. So mm-hmm. I hear so many times, like when I was in residency, so many times I had patients be like, yo, it was dope. Like you really sat down with me because I would literally pull chairs and sit down next to my patients and talk to them. I remember I had a lady um, that um, basically was having like diarrhea, like, you know, persistent diarrhea for mm-hmm. three, four months, started suffering dehydration, metabolic acidosis, all these things. Yeah, I know, like all those things that happen when you have diarrhea. And um, we had GI come see her. We had, uh, you know, um, the uh, the surgeons on, on, the, on the GI side see them as well. So um, I remember one time I came into her room and she was reading a book and, you know, again, I sat down right next to her and I told her like, oh, you may have a condition called, you know, reactive colitis and all these kind of things mm-hmm. kind of broke it down to her. And she was like, yo, you're the first person that ever talked to me that like broke it down in that way. And I'm like, yo, you've seen like 10 to 12 different doctors that came to see you. And the fact that I'm just an intern, I'm like right. in my third month of residency and I literally don't know anything. And these people know more than me. But the fact that you said that I've told you more than they could is just astonishing to me. But that just goes to show the level of discrepancy and difference between how we feel we're doing what we're doing for our patients. Seems like we're doing a lot, but we're not necessarily doing what we think we are. So being able to spend that time, I think, is critical and um, being mindful. Not everyone understands your perspective as a, as a provider, as a, as a physician, then you got to be able to break it down and spend that time with them because you never know how you're going to change the outcome. You might even change their mental health, their, 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 their ability to perceive of that disease just by spending the extra five minutes. I suppose right. just leaving them out there, you know what I'm saying? Baking in the sun and trying to figure out like, am I going to die from this? Things we think you're not going to die from, somebody might think it's literally lethal to them. You know right. what I mean? So it's very important for us to take that time. Yeah, I think it's, um, a couple things that would help to identify low health literacy as well as, mm-hmm. I mean, all when you spoke to a lot of different points and aspects on how to improve it, but regarding, let's say, like non-compliance with medication or mm-hmm. being unable to give coherent or sequential history, um, 
you know, there was a study published in uh, the Health Literacy Research and Practice. I believe it's an older study, um, but it was from an article, mentioned in an article on a website, everydayhealth.com. Mm-hmm. And this was in February of 2022. And they state that ra- racial and ethnic minorities are among those most affected by low health literacy, including the 58% of African-Americans who have basic or below basic health literacy compared with 28% of white Americans. Um, And this was around the time where the Affordable Care Act was uh, greatly expanding healthcare coverage. So we have to think of like the boomers, right? The baby Mm -hmm. boomers and their level of education. Can they read beyond, you know, a fifth grade level to where you would be able to kind of put the words together and actually understand what's being told. Um, A lot of practices now, you know, being that they're on these electronic medical record systems, they even incorporate patient handouts where everything essentially from your visit um, upwards of like laboratory results and prescriptions are given, but can they interpret them? Um, Do they have an advocate in the home that Mm -hmm. can help with understanding and beyond understanding, like staying on top of what it is that they are dealing with health wise. Um, I know personally, my mom, you know, educated to a bachelor's level. She Mm -hmm. has trouble even understanding sometimes what exactly is going on. And like all, when you mentioned the level of explain, you know, of how it, how it is explained, excuse me, by these providers, you know, sometimes they'll take the time and be detail oriented regarding it. And then other times they give you five words and expect (laughs) you to just figure it out. Um, But I, there's certain things I just don't think are taught in medical school and can be taught personally. Um, I don't think you can teach empathy. And I think a lot of, a lot of what comes from making sure that your patients are health literate mm-hmm. um, has to deal with kind of putting yourself in their shoes and empathizing a bit. Yep. Now I do realize there are constraints put on providers by insurance and you have X amount of time that you can spend with patients and mm-hmm. you got to get paid and X, Y, and Z. But, you know, I, I think it's possible to help increase the literacy of patients Um just by taking one step further than just being a provider. Mm. 100%. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Or did I sum them up? I think you summed everything up, girl. Yeah. Bodied it. Put that body back. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it, it. I mentioned insurance, right? So we know mm-hmm. the government is really, at this point, heavily involved in... Healthcare matters, how practitioners, providers are paid out um, mm-hmm. based on what they're seeing, the how often they're being seen. And mm-hmm. the government seems to want to have a lot uh, to do with legislation. Well, as they should. Right. But <laughs> let, let's get down to it. Government shutdown is where I'm trying to go. Yeah. Um, You're going there. I, I saw it. 
I just I feel like the government meddles in it meddles in yes I was get trying to get there the government mm-hmm. meddles in aspects of life that they should just let other people yes deal with fact. like have a healthcare council and deal there and then government deal with the legal and fiscal and separate there but anyway I'm mm-hmm. rambling we were on the verge of a government shutdown. Um, we were. which did not happen because there was a deal made, yes. if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. Um, for those of you that do not know, because I was unaware, I was like, government shutdown, what does that mean? Do we just not yeah. go to work anymore? Yeah, exactly. put them on. Yeah. What's a government it was, shutdown? It was very Our, unclear. That's a fact. Are my unclear. loans going to be absolved they in this better. government? <laughs> okay, y'all could, y'all could <laughs> shut down until next year if my loans is, is disappearing. <laughs> With that. Not shut down forever. What you mean? So <laughs> next year, I don't want to have to ever pay my loans. It would be shut down to the end of my life. Then y'all could restart. It would be pure <laughs> pandemonium, y'all. Yeah. But okay, right. so for our listeners, what is a government shutdown? So a government shutdown in the United States would occur when legislation to fund the federal government is not passed before the next fiscal year begins. Mm. Now, shutdowns can affect multiple agencies across local, state, and federal government, which ultimately would threaten the economy. And the federal government would cease non-essential operations and stop paying non-essential workers. Active duty military personnel would then have to work without pay. So we we don't want a government shutdown um, for the mm. simple fact that non-essential workers would not be paid. And then our military, right. they deserve to be paid. Right. They, they just do. So true. what exactly happened? Um, Congress was very divided this term with the House Republicans, which is was led by the now former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I'm not sure if you saw those hearings. Um, And the House Democrats, led by Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Now, issues with this funding, uh, with the funding of a bill, included additional aid for Ukraine and their ongoing war with Russia, Mm -hmm. increases in funding for federal disaster relief, and a deal was ultimately reached, but it only funds the government until... November 17th, when a new deal will have to be reached. Mm-hmm. Um, now, to bring it back to a medical and health standpoint, mm-hmm. I guess my question would be, with regards to a shutdown happening, how would this affect community health programs that are government funded? Yeah, that's like, that's kind of where something like this inevitably is going to lead to in terms of big picture question like what how is this going to affect things that the government is supposed to handle if you guys are shutting down um you know it's not going to be good i don't think um if i had to guess uh, <laughs> just because there's a lot of especially if we're talking about like say federally qualified health health centers um like fqhcs those are very tied to um government funding Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and a lot of people, especially like in rural areas, um, tend to receive their care in those kinds of facilities. And so right. if, if there's no government support in places like that, I don't see that going well for people who rely on their providers that work at these places to get their medications that they have for their chronic diabetes or their heart disease or, high cholesterol, whatever you want to use. Um, 
So yeah, it, it's it's not gonna be good for them. It's definitely not gonna be good for them. And so it makes me hope that the government has plans to figuring out what this new deal is gonna look like and fast because like November seventeenth is coming up. So tomorrow. Right. Yeah. So I I don't know. They Wait, gotta start thinking 8th. quickly. Oh. Yeah, this yeah. in a month, you know. Yeah. Well no, I said it's tomorrow because the way September came and went i feel it like went. all the other all the That's other birds so are gonna follow suit right 100 percent. but you know uh you know the u.s out of any developed country in the world spends the most on healthcare expenditures mm-hmm. and i mean that you know you know trillions of dollars each year that we spend um but when we talk about like you know the government shutdown how it relates to overall health and the political space I think it's really interesting because it is bipartisan and it's like you have one side versus the other side, but really there's no side that's really from, in my opinion, really advocating for the people in the interest of the people. We have people that are in positions that have been there for years and years longer than I've been alive. You got people that's in there that are not ingrained and entombed in real life and real society. They're not really in the streets. They're not really where the people reside and live at the people Mm. that get up at five in the morning, go to work, hustle, grind, work for 12, 13, 14 hours, come back home, change their kids' diapers, feed their kids, then, you know, try to attempt to go to sleep but have anxiety, stress over if they could afford diapers the next day for their kid or afford mm-hmm. to even be able to live, and especially in the state of affairs that we're in with inflation and econo- economically, a lot of people are not, you know, comfortable. I mean, the average American doesn't have more than three months emergency fund, you know what I'm saying, enough to mm-hmm. pay beyond three months of their rent or three months beyond three months for food and things of that nature. So these people who are living in these extraordinary lives, they have these cars, they have these pensions, these checks that's pulling up for them. Every time I see this shutdown, it's like, yo, what are y'all really, like, what is this shutdown really about? Like, yo, get to it because people's lives are really affected. Like we mentioned, now, <laughs> for real, what the is military. It, what is it really about, though? Like, that's what I'm yeah. trying to figure out. <laughs> the military people is going to get their bread cut off. Like, do y'all right. really even care? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. I mean, I'm glad that they were able to negotiate, but it's been interesting because they also leader Kevin McCarthy because it seemed like he cut a side deal with Ukraine, but also during one of the negotiation deals, he pulled the fire alarm because he wasn't feeling what was going on. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, you just <laughs> things up. Like, we're, we're in dire straits and you, you know, you take it to the full spectrum to pull the fire alarm so that you, you know, devastate this whole meeting. But at the end of the day, it says a lot about the eagles that are going on in Washington. We talked about this in our previous episode. Like, we need an infusion of young people, people that are really about it, and not people that are trying to garner interest in their own agenda. But rather, we need people to focus on the agenda of the people that are being affected each and every day, that aren't seen, that aren't represented, that aren't talked to, that aren't being felt. Mm. Right. And I think it's a a notable mention to state that. So that fire alarm incident that you mentioned, Aldwin, apparently was done by Jamal Bowman, um, a Democratic representative of New York, um, allegedly because he couldn't get into the building to vote. So he couldn't get into the building. Jamal, Jamal. Jamal oh, sound like he one of us too. So like one of us. Yeah. <laughs> Keem Jeffries. Shout out to Keem Jeffries, the blackest name you could ever have ever in Congress. And then Jamal Bowen. Shout out to y'all. Y'all representing. Y'all from the block. Yeah. So we 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 gonna give a pass. We're gonna give a pass. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but okay, New York. Um, there's two New Yorkers on this call. And you're, you're two New Yorkers on the call. You already know. I, I, I am from this. I'm from the Ooh, yeah. 
the sibling New Jersey, okay? The suburbs, the suburbs. New Jersey, Virginia. get out of here. Okay, here, yeah, I, we, don't need, we don't need the, the only hate. New we don't need Jersey. The, we don't, no, we don't need Jersey. the hate. I'm, <laughs> um, I'm in Jersey right now, so I can't even talk. Oh, okay. Oh, where in Jersey are you? I'm <laughs> in... Uh, you, better, you, better be able to say, a, you better be able to say this town. I, you better be able to say Why would I not be able to say the town? Like, I'm in what East town? Orange. What you mean? Oh, East Okay, Orange. Okay. Yo, you're oh, in the, North, we're in the building. You're, you're in North Jersey. Okay, that's where I'm yeah. from. So, love that. Um, But, you know, the mess has not only been happening in, you know, Congress. It's also been apparently happening in you guys' hometown. So... Or home right. home state, sorry, home state. So here in New Jersey, we cannot take any accountability. So New York, y'all gotta y'all gotta figure out what's going on. Like what's going on <laughs> with this with this immigration yeah. influx that is kind of going beyond what New York apparently can handle. Um, mm-hmm. It's saying that New York City typically receives tens of thousands of new immigrants each year, but since spring of right. 2022, there's been more than 118,000 migrants and as- asylum seekers who have arrived. Right. Um, so what, what are you, like, what are you guys' thoughts on kind of this happening? Cause it seems like it's putting a lot of strain on the city's resources. It's costing over 1 billion and projected to cost over 4 billion by July, 2024 in terms of all of, you know, the financial implications of these migrants and asylum seekers coming into, um, New York city. Well, New York uh, has always been a place where people come. Like, I mean, we know right. we, this is a. Im- immigration central um right. for for years, years on years on end um and i i think we need to examine the immigration system mm-hmm. um which is outdated um uh, and we have both democrat and republican leaders who are discussing the need for immigration right. reform but then the other party gets blamed so, mm-hmm. you know, there's really no resolve. Um, I also think the reason we are seeing more of an influx, you know, you have political instability in countries like Haiti. You have mm-hmm. economic crises occurring in, in Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, you have violence in southern Mexico and Central America. So, like, New York City inclusive of the five boroughs when i say new york city so you're talking queens brooklyn manhattan staten island and the bx the bronx mm-hmm. um that's right last but best <laughs> if, they, if the listeners could see all the making x with his arms yeah. <laughs> literally i love the representation i i just had to put that out there so yeah. You know, it's just, what can you do? You have, it's, it, this is known. New York is like the melting pot. And right. I think mm-hmm. for a while we've welcomed, you know, every, nobody really yeah. cared. Um, but at this point, mm-hmm. now you, you're seeing protests starting to arise and come from communities that were traditionally pro-immigrant. But mm-hmm. the fact yeah. that New York is still recovering economically from the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Like we're still feeling the strain. Um, You, we notice bus and the transit prices rising daily. Um, Mm. 100%. It's it's just expensive to live here. And I don't know. I, I think where we start is having a conversation between the parties that can actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, instead of, like I mentioned previously, the blame game, because nothing mm. gets done when you have our leaders who are pointing fingers at each other, kind of like that right. Spider-Man gif, gif 
where it's like, you know, Spider-Man's pointing, the other Spider-Man's pointing <laughs> at each other. <laughs> Nothing's going to get done. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know what else to say on it other than the people who are in charge and can actually make change need to be serious about making the changes that need to occur. So yeah, we I mean, can accommodate see, them. I, I mean, I, I my personal opinion is that our duty is not to accommodate every single migrant that comes into New York City, right? Mm. Because we're the only city that's doing that. Think right. about it. 118,000 people in one year. Right. I, I mean, that 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 is incredible. And you have people like in Texas, Florida, sending buses up to uh, Kamala Harris and then even to New York City. And it's like, we're, we're supposed to be a democracy. We're supposed to be a nation that works together in tandem, right? But yeah. you're putting all these pressures on New York City to accommodate these individuals, but also puts pressure on education, finances, economics, mm -hmm. the yeah. health. And y'all thoroughly disregarded that. And New York City, yes, we're a sanctuary city. So in our opinion, people that come here, you're gonna be safe. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have the opportunity to potentially get a work permit. You're gonna potentially have the opportunity to seek asylum, right? Yeah. Because of various things that are going in your particular country. But I feel like the onus should not be only on New York City and other country, uh, other cities within the actual country aren't taking that responsibility and obligation onto themselves and really burdening us. And I think that is unfortunate. I mean, I currently work at a hospital where we actually, most of our, like 90% of the people in our hospital are migrants, you know? So I see mm -hmm. them every day. I see these people actually interact with them and engage with them. And, you know, I've learned like remarkably, like their stories are so incredible. The like so much things have transpired just to get them to get to New York City. Many of them don't have that bus to get up here, right? They just right. figure out their ways. A lot of them deal with trauma, sexual trauma, abuse, right? Exploitation and all of those things. And, and 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 in regards to their stories is incredible, but on top of that, like I feel like we are, we also have an obligation to not necessarily exclude them as human beings because now what we're seeing is that Trump, you know, the reverse. There's been a reversal of the wall that's being built. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen part of that New Deal that we just talked about. They're actually mm -hmm. rebuilding some of the walls. 500 miles have been built already, and now mm -hmm. they're building more of the walls. That's not going to deter people from getting to this country one way or another. <laughs> people is going to get it. They're going to swim. They they're going to take horses. Away. They're going to get their reporter. Right. Okay. You, you feel me? <laughs> Skydive. Like, no, people. like not, for real. People's, like, they have record number yeah. of people. They find dead bodies across the desert from people coming from Mexico into. The U.S., they find those bodies, people dehydrated, dying oh, from sad. a variety of illnesses and conditions just to get it to America. It's so bad where their countries are that they're willing to die just to get here. You know what That's I'm saying? That's true. And so I agree with you, Erica. Like, there should be a conversation. But really, the conversation should be we we can't deter these people from coming here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I think it's very complicated and it's very political. And I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. But I do believe that every human being deserves a right to live, a privilege to be comfortable, to work toward a life where they can take care of their families and things of that nature. And sometimes these people don't even have that opportunity. I mean, I met a, a Haitian family a couple of weeks ago that was from Chile that they were talking about being persecuted and, you know, being um, in a disadvantaged position where people didn't respect them. And they left that country because of that, because of the, the fact that they couldn't feel comfortable, that they thought that, that they may have potentially lost their, their lives or their families' lives. So it's incredibly important for us to have these conversations, but not necessarily put that burden on just one city and other cities got to really step up.
a, a hefty conversation tough needs to be had um and it, it's a, a i feel like this isn't new right it's not something that we've discussed i mean we might have been mentioning it mentioning it here for the first time but I'm sure we've heard about this for the last however many years of being in New York. I've been a New Yorker all my life, with the mm. exception of living in college, mm-hmm. living mm-hmm. living away for college. H U. Um, but uh, well, another... we, we we do that for Howard. We... Let's, okay, sorry. Go ahead. Oh my god! <laughs> I did it on purpose. The, my bad. The homecoming episode. <laughs> But uh, another story that we've been discussing for years on end, and this, I don't know how it's going to land with our listener population, the ages, you know, I'm not sure what our youngest or oldest listener remembers, Mm. but we had some news come out about the killer or alleged killer of Tupac Shakur, Keith, Mm. in custody. Um, And this was one of the biggest, greatest hip-hop tragedies of the 90s um Mm. and i do remember learning about tupac's death and i don't necessarily remember where i was but there are people that have that you know ingrained in their memory but right it was recently brought back into the culture um and into our consciousness when Dwayne keith davis was indicted for the murder of Tupac Shakur. Now, Mm. this man um, has previously said in interviews and his personal memoir that he was a passenger in the vehicle that pulled up to the stoplight where Tupac's vehicle was. Wow. And, I mean, he's been on a... He's been on a run for years. (laughs) Not on the run, but he's been on a run for years of just kind of giving information and oversharing... And it's kind of like, well, what did you expect to happen, sir? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm also hoping more information comes out and this can be settled because you know, who wants? I'm not, I'm not a mother, but as a mother, I can only imagine like Athena Shakur, like how she's felt over this is almost thirty years decades, now, decades, right? Um, yep. Not having your son's murderer in jail and just all of the conspiracy theories and maybe we could finally put this to rest um right i don't know do y'all have any thoughts on it i would just like to say my, my our buddy suge knight suge knight Mm-mm. he yeah. has gone he has gone scot-free for way too dang long and we need to <laughs> we need to get suge together okay he now? has he has yeah, been he the common yeah. link. Oh, he's he, that man finally in jail. Oh wow, he been, he been in for my long. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh no. Okay. He's in for like thirty. That's my years. bad. Oh, that's my bad. I thought we had this man running around scot free because I was like, he's been the common no. link in so many <laughs> '90s hip hops death row like situations, yeah. whatever. You know, yes. Yeah, so I would like to say that uh okay, so now that Suge is out of the picture, yeah. So this guy, Keith, uh <laughs> Keith, I just I I'm I don't know how I feel about this. Like I'm wondering why now. That's my question that I'm getting on like when I'm hearing about this story mm-hmm, is like right. why now? Because like he we've known for a while his role that he played in the murder that he was in the car you know that he was present so i'm just wondering what exactly did they find that all of a sudden they want to start like trying to build a case on him um i do i do think it's good that they actually are creating development in tupac's murder case that we are getting somewhere but it's like 
I don't know what how it goes down in like the government where they just all of a sudden get this burst of inspiration to like start trying to dig into something that happened 30 years ago. Like, where was this energy then? So I, I don't know. I don't know how what if Keith really is the one who like, you know, created this entire thing. Um, mm. Did that man pull the trigger? Uh, listen, like only he and God knows. That's all I can say. That's all I can say on the situation. You know, with Keith David, he he was he was given uh, clemency and leniency from L.A. County, and that's why he was going on this tirade about doing mm. these conversations and interviews regarding the act, actual um, killing of Tupac. And it was right. so explicit. He wrote in his own book that it was so explicit that it was so detailed. I was like, bro, you were there, and you know exactly who pulled the trigger. They actually recently did an interview, um, quote, not quick, not interview, but they had a comment. There's somebody that called Shug Knight, actually. Um, mm -hmm. in um, prison, um, in Cali, and um, he admitted, like, yeah, it wasn't the Keith Keith D that actually shot the shot. He knows who it is, mm -hmm. but you know how there's a street code and everything of that nature. They're not gonna reveal that. But these right. two individuals know exactly who killed, and, and it's crazy to think, like, all these years, like, forget all that street code stuff. Like, somebody's mm -hmm. family needs some clarity and clear understanding of what happened. And actually, they mentioned uh, even with Afini Shakur, she actually is so done with the situation. She doesn't even care to find out who actually killed her son. Because right. at this point, her her thoughts and 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 in regards to her son is that you know he's moved on and successfully transitioned in in, mm -hmm. a, in a space where he doesn't have to deal with this. Mm -hmm. But I think even for his fans, like we we need some clarity on this. And I'm glad that even though it's it's taken so many years for this to happen. There's yeah. an answer because there's so many murders that happen that, mm -hmm. you know, we're just like, whatever, we'll never find out what happened. Right. We never, you know what I'm saying? You got people like, you know, Emmett Till in his situation, you know, a lady, you know, uh, spit on her, you know what I'm saying? She <laughs> did what she did. And, uh, you feel me? So, <laughs> like, with that being said, <laughs> like, we, you know, I'm glad oh that this is happening God. and hopefully we find more truths and there's a allegedly Diddy is connected to this and all. Mm -hmm. it, it's a complicated issue, but we know that. Um, we have somebody in hand that was witness to the murders and uh, hopefully we find out sooner rather than later what happens and they put them paws on him while he's in prison, you know, <laughs> enjoy yourself <laughs> while you're out there. But enough of the hatred. Let's talk about love. Ooh, well, actually, maybe there is. Let's no talk longer. about love. <laughs> maybe there is no love because what we're seeing, Tiana Taylor and Amon Shumpert, you know, one of the four most regarded young couples in hip-hop and in culture in in you know sports and the like um were found to be separated rumors uh was started uh that that shared that iman shopper was allegedly cheating on tiana taylor after a video circulated on social media showing him in the background of another woman it could be his friend guys stop assuming a man can have friends and <laughs> women we didn't even we having a whole son of five we even get to the video right. what video right. where where was the video it's on tiktok okay. type that joint right. i don't got the exact link y'all could go on google and do what y'all need to do to find it right okay but fans and tiana as always you know and the couple started dragging him like Tiana, I mean, you can't make this up. Like Tiana, there was a photo of Tiana and Chris Brown that was really close the, a couple months ago, but nobody drags her for that. But anyway, um, Tiana eventually came to his defense. Why do you have to IG take post. it there all day? Why, why are you going to Because like, oh, why are you getting him? I actually listened to his podcast. It's a man amongst men. He actually had a recent episode about okay. mental health, which is pretty cool mm -hmm. with his brother. But anyway, so um, I feel like that, you know, there's disparities with how people target black men versus black women in these scenarios. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that is not about the topic, right? Um, not 
you know, in all fairness, Iman and I are separated and have been for a while, is what she said. You know, mm-hmm. not too much of my bestie. She wrote on a post on Instagram. And to mm-hmm. be 1,000% clear, infidelity ain't one of the reasons for our de- departure. And they've been married since 2016. And, uh, you know, uh, that happened after they got engaged uh, at their baby shower for their daughter, June, beautiful daughter. And then they also have, uh, you know, another beautiful child as well. But mm-hmm. I wanted to ask for you guys, how do you feel about uh, this black celebrity breakup? We've seen a lot of this go on um, in our media. Luckily, the Obamas are still running. Last <laughs> week was the anniversary. They're still strong. Right? They're still standing so, strong, man. Oh, my Shout gosh. out to them. Last week they had the anniversary. Uh, I am Team Obama. I am Team Obama. Let me just say that. Let me just put that out there. See, Michelle gave us the cheat code. She gave (laughs) us the cheat code on how you stay married to somebody for over 30 years Mm -hmm. who is that successful and a black man. She gave us the cheat code. She told us that you have to like the man. You got to actually like him. And that's what the issue is. A lot of people don't actually like their spouses. Y'all think you like them, but you don't. And that's the problem. You You guys, you think you like them, but you do not like that person because when stuff hits the fan, you don't want to stay around. So I think it it comes back to this point um, that matters when it comes to partnership marriage, especially within the black community. Like you guys have to not only agree on the goals you have to uplift each other and support each other through life and grow with each other, but you have to fundamentally like each other. Because if you don't That's fundamentally right. like each other, anything that happens can easily break you guys apart. Marriages have been failing. Have you guys watched the, seen the news? <laughs> Marriages are ending left and right and center. Like it's actually, it's actually kind of an epidemic right now with these with these black marriages. <laughs> they just failing left and right, and it's <laughs> yep. it's so it's so disappointing to see as somebody who is a big proponent and like fan of black love. Like what mm-hmm. is going on? Like why why does this continue? to to happen i would like to say that i'm so glad that the obamas are standing strong looking moisturized and continuing to do god's good work which is showing what it means to be a successful black couple in love so yeah i you know iman and tiana i don't know um honestly speaking they weren't really to me the epitome of like a black couple so like i don't really have (laughs) i don't really have much to like harp on when it comes to them like honestly i don't want to lie and say i was rooting for them because it's kind of like i don't really even know much about the couple to begin with like yeah i I would see them together she they i think i watched like one interview of them together and it looked cute but like i don't know like when it comes to the celebrity life it seems like any small thing you break up so like i don't know if i can say i'm surprised about it to be honest with you so yeah that's kind of where i how i feel about the situation i'm over here dying laughing (laughs) (laughs) um you know what what i think i i wonder because you said both of y'all said a lot but is you mentioned black love and the examples and everybody breaking up right Mm -hmm. when i consider the relationships of old the ones that have stood the test of time, those mm. families who are coming up on 30, 35, 40, 45, 50 years of marriage. Right. Who are their examples for black marriage? They mm. didn't have Real. any. You know what I mean? Like we Barley. idolize, we not necessarily idolize, but like social media has us looking at everybody's everything but our mm. own. And I think that's a part of the problem. Like looking right. to other, oh my God, like, like, and I feel you, the Obamas, I think they are dope, but mm-hmm. like 
there was once upon a time where a couple like the Obamas existed and nobody saw their relationship. They just knew they were married. Right. Um, you know what I mean? So it's, I think, I think culture, Oh, I might get a little uh, canceled for this one, but I think we just do too much focusing on other people's relationships. Um, mm. Like, Ooh. why do we need an example of okay. black love? You know what I mean? Like, right. What if the Obamas did not showcase, and I don't think they actually showcase per se, but th- there was a time where nobody said like, oh, these that's the example of marriage. And marriages were surviving. Yeah. <laughs> so it was perhaps we need to stop looking at other people's relationships as an example. Right. Um, now I understand we in the black community, like some of us grew up in two parent homes. Some of us didn't. So, you know, if Mm -hmm. you're looking for an example, because you want to glean from, I get that, but I just, I think we're doing way too much at looking at snippets, literal snippets of people's lives on the only thing we have access to, which is social media. Like they can show us anything. Mm. So for us to Mm. even say like Tiana and Iman, are we surprised? Why, you know, surprise, like I, yes and no. I mean, did we know what was going on in their relationship for real? Yes, they had a reality show um, or whatever show they had displaying their life on social media. But even that, that's edited down. Right. We don't know anything about these people's lives. We don't know nothing. Uh, Michelle Obama gave us her cheat code, but that's not necessarily going to apply to everybody. It's I not. mean, I think the basis of it, you got to like a person. Let me tell you something. I know wives that don't always like their husbands, but they have right. a level of respect mm. and they are committed. Mm. And I think that's what keeps people around. Mm. Um, so I think it's just... Mm. what's good for the goose is not always going to be good for the gander. And we're in a society now where everybody's looking for answers somewhere. And we really need to just kind of sit with ourselves and figure out our own answer. Right. Um, I think that can be applied across life relationships and everywhere. Okay. Uh, But yeah, let's, let's get to the financial corner. Quick corner. We back at it again. So we, today we're going to talk about student loans, obviously. Um, student loan repayment has restarted. So I hope y'all checked your balance. Got to studentgov.e, whatever, you know, get on there. Make sure you know where you at. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to talk about um, being careful with the student loans because there's actually scams that are going on, uh, Biden loan forgiveness scams. Since last year, the Federal Trade Commission has received more than 4,000 complaints, complaints related to uh, the student loan debt relief scam, which incredibly has happened to so many individuals. As we know, this is a commonality for people internationally, right? For being predatory in nature. And unfortunately, um, the FTC and the D- Department of Justice, fortunately, announced that over 22,000 borrowers will receive refunds from a $9 million settlement from quite known company called Ameritech Financial Student Loan Debt Relief, um, which was operated by an individual named Brandon Fear uh, through 2018. This person charged up to $800 in illegal upfront fees and required $100 to $1,200 in advance fees for enrollment in a financial education program. And people were also paying monthly payments of $99. They're supposed to go toward their debt. Overall, they took out $28 million from people that thought that it was a validated program. 
which which is unfortunate. You know, these people are working hard and giving their money to something that is, uh, in, you know, not necessarily doing is due justice. And even regards to even now, when we talk about a lot of people are not keen and aware. And I, I want I want to employ you guys to continuously educate yourself about what's going on with student loan debt relief, because a lot of people believe that um, Biden's plan to forgive 20,000 is still going on. And these mm. people, again, are predatory on that, calling people on their phone, leaving voicemails and things of that nature. And people are just hyped up because, believe it or not, 50 percent of people actually in America out of the one point seven trillion dollars that are owed in student loan debt have less than $20,000 that they owe. So once that plan goes through, they're like, yo, I'm good. Like, I don't have to worry about anything else. So people are quick to, you know, just hop on that immediately. Um, So uh, I wanted to um, tell you guys uh, how to avoid student loan scams. Make sure you sign up to be notified when the student um, debt relief application becomes open. It might become, it might not. Obviously, Supreme Court um, have, you know, negated that. But Still have hope. Grandpa Biden might ch- change it up. <laughs> um, make sure. You- <laughs> why are you like this? <laughs> well, why am I like what? I'm just saying, bro. He's Grandpa Biden. Oh Bro's over eighty, son. He's grandpa. All right, <laughs> make sure you create your FSA ID. Make sure you and also many of people's loan services have changed. So make sure you go on um, studentaid.gov to make sure that you know who your loan services have changed. So the loan services that you had prior to the pandemic is most likely different than the ones that you have now. Actually, around 44% of federal student loan borrowers who began repayment this month have a new loan servicer. So that's almost half of the people that are actually there. And make sure that your um, loan service has your correct information and report the scammers to the Federal Trade Commission. What you should not do is not pay anyone to help you apply for debt relief, right? Just do everything online on studentaid.gov, right? Mm-hmm. Any numbers on there, it's official. Um, do not reveal your FSA ID login information to anyone or give personal financial information to an unfamiliar unfamiliar caller. They're going to leave you voicemails and continue attacking you on your voicemails. You know what I mean? So don't don't reach out to them because nobody's calling you. There's too many people for them to call. They're not calling you regarding your loans. Right. Right? Over the next 12 months, actually, um, I'll tell someone this. If you're not able to actually pay your loans, the government will not put your loan into default. So it can't affect your actual credit score for the next 12 months. So you could not pay your loan for the next 12 months, but it's going to accrue, obviously, along with interest. But saying that to say, there's still some leeway with that. And also do not refinance your federal student loans unless you know the actual risk. So be aware of them scammers, be in tune, educate yourself, read about it once a week, you know, once every couple of days, just know what's going on because it's very easy to fall into the ploy and abyss of the madness that's going on of people trying to take advantage. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that money talk. I'm Thank sure you. everything can say that. Yeah, it was absolutely. It was great. Although my loan Thank servicer you. is now Jesus saves because <laughs> I told you that's that only God no. God already oh. paid the ultimate price. <laughs> that is what I have put in my hope and trusted. Okay, that Biden can go somewhere. My Yo, we gotta covered. leave the country, son. Yo, my forget the covered. loan, bro. My loan servicer is. I'm out the country. You listen, okay. All right, but we we loved the financial corner today. Thank you, Doctor Aldwin, for laying the information. Thank you to our listeners once again for listening on this episode episode of the Lounge. So that's our show. Thanks so much, guys, for joining us for this episode of the Lounge. Let us know your thoughts about the discussions we had today or ask us a question for a chance to be featured on the show at podcast at snma.org. 
Y'all already know the vibes. Be sure to follow the SNMA on all our social media platforms to stay up to date on upcoming events. We out here. Have a blessed day. We love y'all.